Now hear God's holy word from Luke's gospel, chapter 10, as we return to our study in this gospel. Hear now God's holy word, inspired and perfect. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face in every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let us give thanks together. Father in heaven, we give you praise and thanks for the words of our Savior. And we pray that as we read and reflect on these things today, that by your spirit, we would soak up these words. Your word is life. Your word is food. And so, Father, we come to you hungry, and we need to be filled. Father, by your Holy Spirit, may we receive these things. Deliver me from error. Deliver us all from distraction. And may we spend this productive time in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. People of God, from the moment your children leave the womb, they are moving away from you. They're, they're moving away from their parents. Every step of maturity for your children is a step of independence and personal responsibility for them. When they're just a few months old, they start to arch their back and want to get down and want to crawl and move away from you. And they, they assert their individuality from very early on. They, they assert their separate personhood. They really are an, an individual and they crawl, and they walk, and then as they start to move, they, they develop these wider and, and, and wider radiuses away from, away from you, whether it's on a skateboard or roller skates or bicycle, and then Lord help us when they get driver's licenses, they, they go even further away from us, this, this wider radius that they're not able to move from. It's that, that, that trajectory is not toward you, that trajectory is away from you. And they keep going and circling away. And they have school and activities and they go to friends' houses. They start developing their own circles of friends outside of the family and away from you. They take jobs. They look at colleges. They develop relationships with the opposite sex. And eventually, if all goes according to plan, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. If everything goes right, they end up in another house away from you with their own family. Success! We did our job. They did, they, they did what was right, and we did, and we did what was right. They go form their own family unit away from you, and they finish the journey that they began the moment they took their first breath on the outside of the womb. Uh, as I read one time, and I've shared with some of you, this, this thing that is kind of like a knife in the heart, this, this little saying, but one day you will put your child down and you will never pick them up again. You don't know when that day is. One day you put them down and you don't pick them up again. Which is why I still pick up my 15-year-old daughter, just for fun. <laughs> we still do horsey rides because that day hasn't come yet, you know. I can still hold her. Uh, it's rough, but, but uh, on me, on my back, you know. Uh, but this is all very normal and this is all very acceptable and good. What's extraordinary is for a healthy, able-bodied child to never leave the womb. And I mean that both literally and figuratively. 
to never graduate through the steps of maturity that take them inevitably away from you, to, to be tied, as it were, to a parental umbilical cord to you all their lives, and never to be in a position to jump out of the nest and stretch their wings. Now, while we all recognize that this is what we want, it's at the same time very frightening. It's scary for them. It's scary for us. Every time we send them out the door without us, whether it's to go to school or to go to someone's house or to go to a club or a practice or an activity, we wonder, are they mature enough for this step? And sometimes we cross these thresholds where we wonder, are they ready for this yet? Or are they going to be eaten alive? The world is a scary place. They could get hurt. They could get into trouble. They could be sinned against. They might learn bad things. They might expose me and my poor parenting over them. Maybe I haven't prepared them. And yet, as scary as it is, we must all take the leap at the right time, take the calculated risk, and push them out of the nest for them to fly. I often use the meta metaphor of teaching a child how to ride the bicycle. At, at some point, when running alongside the bike, you have to let go of the handlebars. Well, they might fall. Yeah, they might. They might fall. But you've got to let go of the handlebars. Uh, they, they might go all the way to the end of the street and forget how to use the brakes. Well, yeah, that's a risk too. But you have to let go of the handlebars. Let go of the bicycle. The alternative is for you to run alongside the bicycle until they're 30 and you're 60. Wouldn't that be funny to go down to Bond Park and see a 30-year-old riding a bicycle and a 60-year-old dad running alongside? I got it, dad. I got it. Uh, leave me alone. That's the alternative. And that's so ridiculous, but that's, that's, the, that's the alternative to letting go. This letting go of the bicycle, this turning your children loose to the world, is very similar to what Jesus is doing in Luke chapter 10. It's been a few months since we've been in the study, so to quickly remember where we are and where we've been, Jesus, throughout most of Luke's gospel, has been spending his time in his home country, around the town where he grew up. Up in the north, if you can imagine a map of, of Israel, a map of Palestine, Jesus has been up north around the Sea of Galilee, around Nazareth, around uh, his people and his countrymen. He's crossed the sea with his disciples. He spent a little bit of time over in Gentile territory, but not much. But for the most part, he stayed in a relatively small area, calling people to himself, healing, casting out demons, teaching his people. But toward the end of chapter 9, where we left off last fall, he begins his journey down to Jerusalem. It's time now for him to go to Jerusalem and face down the authorities and the powers and the people of the city and even to face down the temple itself. So from here, from chapter 10 to chapter 19 in Luke's gospel, Jesus is on the road. He's on the road this whole time. It's a long trip. He teaches, he heals all the way down to Jerusalem. Some of the best stories in literature are, are stories that happen on a journey where you, you're on this journey and you meet interesting characters and there are challenges and there are tests along the way. So it's no surprise that the greatest story ever told is a road narrative uh, to a great extent. And all these traveling metaphors come to the surface. Jesus is on a journey with his people, just as the church is on a journey. She doesn't stay in one place. She continues to go out and move. She's on a trajectory of motion outwards to the world and onto maturity. And you and I are all individually on 
a journey. We're all travelers. We, we are not meant to stay static. We grow and we change and we develop. So now where we are in chapter 10, we're at the beginning of this trip to Jerusalem from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem toward the south. And just at the start of this, Jesus appoints 70 messengers to go on ahead of him, to run ahead and prepare the way for him in all the villages and all the towns and all the cities between him and Jerusalem, these places he intends to visit. Just as God sent his angel on ahead in the promised land, just as he sent uh, the, the angel of the Lord went before the people into the promised land, so now Jesus sends his angels, his messengers, you know those are the same word, messenger, angel, in the original language. So he sends his angels, his messengers before his face to prepare the way of the Lord. He's, he's sending them on ahead to soften up these towns a little bit. Same way he sent Jonah to Assyria. He sent Jonah to Nineveh ahead of the Assyrian captivity, right? To soften the, the place where his people were going to land, to prep the soil. So here Jesus sends these 70 out to prep the soil for the seed of the gospel. And as he does this, it's very real, he's letting go of the bicycle. He's turning, he's turning loose of these 70 and sending them out to the world. Are they ready? Are they ready to pedal on their own? Can they keep it up right? Are they going to fall and skin their knee? Well, he admits that as he sends them, he sends them out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So there are very real terrors, very real threats out there. The world he sends them into is hostile to them, but he has to send them anyway. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep among hungry, ravenous wolves. But I can't wait until things get better. I can't wait until things get safer or more easy. This is going to be hard. This is going to be tough. But this is what I've called you to do. I've called you to do the hard thing. I've called you to do the difficult thing. Not to hang back. I haven't called you to not take any risks. But I've called you to take the things I've taught you and carry them to the people up ahead of me. It isn't safe, but it is required. It's not easy, but you must do this. And, it, and it's just like you do with your child before they go out the door, before they go out to a friend's house. I don't know, I do this. Uh, before they go to a party or a trip, you, you give them a list of instructions. You give them these reminders of how to live. What do you do if something goes wrong? You try to think of all the possibilities and all the scenarios. If this happens, you must do this. If somebody does this, then this is how you have to respond. And, and you try to squeeze all that distilled information so that they hopefully remember how to obey and, and, and hopefully remember how to behave. So Jesus sends these disciples out with this distilled list of instructions He's pretty much expanding on the directions he gave the apostles in the previous chapter, if you remember that. When he sent out the 12, he gave them a short list of requirements and a short list of instructions. Now he expands on this as he sends out, out the 70 uh, here. So we're going to move through this text uh, as swiftly as we can and make a few observations along the way. It says that he appoints 70 others, 70 followers. He has 12 apostles that he set apart as the new elders, the new heads of the new tribes of Israel. Uh, he's forming a new Israel to go on a new exodus. And so we've got 12 men representing the 12 tribes. But now he sends along 70 additional disciples. This number 70, as you know, comes up repeatedly throughout the scriptures. 
Most prominently, back in Genesis 10, after the flood, we get a catalog of all the nations of the world. And how many nations of the world are there after the flood, after the generations of Noah's son? There are 70, 70 nations. So anytime we have 70, the number 70, this is a reference in some way to the whole world. This is a reference to all the nations. When Israel goes down into Egypt, at the end of Genesis, Jacob's household is 70 people. What does this mean? Well, uh, symbolically, it, it means that the whole world is going down into slavery. Israel always serves as priests on behalf of the whole world. Israel's death and resurrection in Exodus and in Egypt, their death into Egypt and their resurrection and their liberation from slavery, that's a foretaste of the whole world going into death and being resurrected and being freed as well. So 70 come in, a great multitude come out, and the whole world, this is just a foretaste of what the Lord is going to do with the whole earth. In Numbers, a little bit later, we find out that Moses has 70 elders who are also anointed by God's Holy Spirit, uh, just as Moses is. They are rulers over Israel. And again, we're always reminded that Israel stands in for the whole earth. At the Feast of Tabernacles, they sacrifice 70 bulls every year. Why 70? Well, all nations of the world are being protected by and covered by and blessed by Israel's worship. When Israel is faithful, the world is blessed. Israel intercedes on behalf of the whole world. And so they sacrifice and they pray on behalf of the whole world. Certainly today that duty is given to the church, right? In fact, the word uh, used for church in the New Testament, you know, is the Greek word ekklesia, which originally in Greek was a word that you would use for a local town council, a little city council. Well, you can go visit the Cary Town Council. You can go visit the Apex Town Council, the Apex Ecclesia, uh, and, and you can talk about zoning and where to put up traffic lights. Uh, but in a way, the real government of the world, the real ecclesia, the real center of government for the world lies in the church. It's the church that stands before God, who considers the problems of the world and asks God to change the world. We are, uh, and, and this is, is a very um, intentional way of using this word in the New Testament, that the church is the real assembly before God. It is a real town council. So the 70 elders that, that are called together in Israel who serve under Moses are in, in a sense representatives of the world before God. 70 nations, 70 elders, and now it's significant that Jesus has a new Israel represented by 12 apostles, but he also rules over a new world, and that is represented by the 70 uh, uh, disciples that he sends out. Now, I've, I've got to stop right here because some of you are already scratching your head because you're following along in the ESV or uh, perhaps the NIV, I think. And Luke 10 says he appointed 72 instead of 70. And here I am making all this big deal about the number 70 and you're staring at the number 72. So I have to stop and say, what's up with that? What's going on there? Did anybody think of that or anybody see it? Okay, at least one, okay. So everybody else can check out for the next few minutes, but I'll address that for the one. No, I'm kidding. Uh, this is interesting and this is important. Um, uh, this is one of those spots where we have manuscripts that don't line up exactly. Some Greek manuscripts do say 72. The majority text or the, the traditional text says 70. Um, 
it's also significant that the Septuagint, you know, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that was in use in the first century when uh, Jesus and the apostles were doing their work, the Septuagint says that Moses had 72 elders. Isn't that interesting? Now the Hebrew text says 70, but for some reason, somebody translated the 70 from the Hebrew into 72 in the Greek. So, so what, what's going on here? Uh, we believe and we confess and we maintain that, that the writings of Moses, the writings of Luke, the writings of scripture were, were inspired by the Holy Spirit and are infallible, but copies and translations are not inspired in the same way. And so the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, that's not, that's not inspired in the, in the same way. So it appears that the, the translator of the Septuagint, for whatever reason, and this is just how it appears, it appears that he wrote 72 instead of 70 when talking about how many elders that Moses had. Perhaps a miss, a copying error or a translation error. And then centuries later, perhaps a Greek copyist of Luke, knowing the Septuagint, knowing the connection between Jesus' disciples and Moses' elders, wanted to resolve a contradiction. And so maybe he copies or, or mistranslates 72 in Luke 10. And so we have a handful of manuscripts that say 72. Here's the crazy footnote to that. What does Septuagint mean? 70. So the Septuagint refers to the 70 Jewish scholars who translated the scriptures into, into Greek. If only someone had noticed the irony there and, and corrected that. But at any rate, and, and there are other theories that we don't have time to go through. But when we run across little things like this, I think it's important to stop and say, okay, so, oh my goodness, which is it? Is it 70 or 72? Does, does, our, does our faith stand on whether it was 70 or 72? Uh, it doesn't undermine my faith in the scriptures. It doesn't undermine my confidence that we have the complete word of God. Rather, it doesn't undermine it. It establishes it. I always go back to this. You know that we have 6,000 handwritten ancient Greek manuscripts of the scriptures. 6,000 manuscripts existing for the Bible, more than any other ancient text. Do you know how many we have of Herodotus, the histories of Herodotus? We have eight. You know how many we have of Plato's? Plato's writings, you know how many we've got? Seven. We've got 6,000 of the Bible, and we've got 20,000 other manuscripts, ancient manuscripts of Latin, Syriac, uh, Ethiopian, Coptic. We have 20,000 other ancient supporting manuscripts, and 6,000 of the Bible. And the variation along those 6,000 manuscripts, the variation is less than 1%. That's like half a percent. And that's not just a number that's made up. No, that's, that's, that's actually half a percent. That's how much or how little they vary. Uh, could you copy something 6,000 times yourself and make less than 1% error? Could you do that? Could you do that over several centuries with several hundreds and thousands of people? Probably not. So when we come across little things like this, we say, okay, our faith doesn't rest upon whether it was 70 or 72. And it's good to remind ourselves that, you know, we don't say, oh, I'm not even sure the Bible's true. I can't trust it. No, we realize that this text is amazing. What an amazing book we have in our hands that's uh, got so much support and so much uh, literary and, and historic support that it's not even uh, funny.
so if you have any other questions about that, that's fine. We'll talk about it. Uh, you can ask me questions offline. But if you're reading it and you said, oh, 72, I needed to stop and comment on that. So Jesus appoints 70 uh, disciples, or 72, but probably 70. And he sends them out two by two. He doesn't send them alone, right? Jesus doesn't call his people to live isolated, lone ranger lives. You need partners. You need companions. You need friends. You need, to, you need someone to tell you in the middle of a battle, in, in the middle of, of war, that, uh, that you're doing the right thing, that you're following the Lord, to, to encourage you, to lift you up. Isolation drives us crazy. Loneliness makes us doubt ourselves and doubt reality. Jesus doesn't send them out alone. He sends them to by two. And then he sets them aside and he gives them their orders. Verse two, he said to them, the harvest truly is great and the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What he says to them is we have a lot of work, more work than we have hands to do the work. When a field is ready for harvest, and the crop has ripened, you only have a few weeks. Sometimes you only have a few days to get the crop in out of the field. Sometimes a late rain can ruin a crop. A storm can hinder your work. So you have to work fast. When the, when the field is ripe for the harvest, there is no delay. So pray, Jesus says, pray that we'll have more hands to help us bring in this harvest. What is the deadline that Jesus is looking at? What is the deadline that is looming? Well, it's the day of reckoning. It's the day of judgment that's coming to Israel. And the question is, is Israel going to receive their Messiah? Are they going to join him on his way? Or are they going to hang on to the old world and perish with the old world? So there's a definite sense of gravity and urgency to the mission of these 70 that Jesus sends out. Verse 3, he says, go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. Jesus doesn't whitewash the kinds of threats that he's sending them into. He, he, say, he doesn't say, I'm sending you out as sheep among the sheep. So I hope everything goes fine. Get along. This is going to be really fun. Uh, you'll meet a lot of other sheep out there, and it's going to be great. No, he says, I'm sending you into places where there are going to be wolves. The persecution is only going to become more intense. Don't be naive. You're going to meet some hard resistance, he says. And this is critical for us to remember as we turn our children loose to the world. This isn't a soft, friendly place that we send our children into. The world is hostile to the gospel. The world is hostile to righteousness. The world is hostile to God's law and his ordering of the world. The whole secular arena has been set up in such a way that people have convinced themselves that they've roped off this great big area of life where Jesus is not king and where his word doesn't matter. We've got this big area where he doesn't rule. So if you want to believe Jesus, then crawl back into your ghetto, go back to your house, go back to your church, talk about Jesus under your bed because we don't want to hear it here. You see, this is secular life and this is where Jesus doesn't matter. He's irrelevant here. That's what they uh, maintain and that's what they believe. And if you do claim that Jesus has something to say about what's going on, it isn't going to be pretty for you. You are not going to be heard. You're not going to be listened to. Nobody's going to have any patience for you. 
There may have been a time where you would have been tolerated. There may have been a, a time where you might have been listened to, but now the only kind of tolerance that is acceptable is tolerance for evil. That's the only kind of tolerance that's left is tolerance for wickedness. When people preach tolerance, you say, great, I want to hear about this tolerance that you're talking about because I want a space where I can love you, but I want you also to listen to me. But you see, they clap their hands over their ears. They only want one-way tolerance, tolerance for evil, tolerance for wickedness. So Jesus sends them out to this very same kind of world. Do not be naive, he says. When I'm sending you out, I'm sending you out into a world that's full of wolves. And he still sends them out. He, the wolves don't, they're not a deal breaker. The, the wolves, it's not the end of the story. He sends them out into a world full of wolves and there's no excuse for not going. We just have to know what we're getting into and, and he uh, uh, informs his men about this as well. And then to compound the spirit of risk, he says to his disciples, he says, hey, don't take any money with you. Don't stop by the ATM on the way out. Don't take a backpack, travel light. Don't go down to the outfitters and get a bunch of gear. Don't make hotel reservations. In other words, he says, go as you are. I'll provide for you along the way. Don't greet anybody on the road because that in the Middle East and certainly ancient Eastern custom, you greet somebody on the road, you could be there for three days just saying hello. He says, you know, you got a mission here. You got some place to be. Keep going. Don't be drawn aside by anyone. Don't trust anyone. Focus on your task. Get to the next town. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. But whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house, whatever city you enter and they receive you eat such things as are set before you. Now you'll remember this is a very similar instruction to what he gave the 12. Uh, when you visit a village, don't skip around from house to house. Don't take one invitation and say, yeah, I'd love to come to your house. And then maybe somebody a little bit richer, somebody with a little bit better bed and a little bit better food invites you over to their house. And you say, oh, well, you know, something better came up. So I'm going to stay over here. And then somebody even better invites you over. You don't go skipping around different houses, he says. Stay in the first house that opens up to you. We don't want to get the reputation that we're in this for the money, that we're in this for the comfort. Don't be a social climber always looking for a better invitation. When he says, eat such things that are set before you, this is just a foretaste of something that's gonna be a bigger deal as the gospel continues to go out to the nations. This freedom to eat with Gentiles, this freedom to eat with people who may not have the same dietary standards as a Jew, or maybe people who don't follow them with as much rigor as an Orthodox Jew, or with as much precision, Jesus says, eat whatever's put in front of you. Before Peter sees the sheet let down from heaven, before Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no question for conscience sake. Before they say that, Jesus says, sit down and eat whatever's put in front of you. So from the start of Jesus's ministry, table fellowship is a critical component of discipleship, of evangelism, of ministry. Don't set up barriers to enjoying meals with people who need your fellowship, Jesus says. Don't be fussy about food laws. Jesus is in the process of changing all of these things. And so he gives his people freedom to eat with whoever invites them to eat. Verse 9, he says, Heal the sick there and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. 
Remember, Jesus also sent the 12 out to preach the gospel and heal the sick. And we spent some time back in Advent talking about that combo mission of preaching the gospel and healing the sick. How many times it keeps coming up together. Now he sends the 70 out to do the same, preach the gospel, heal the sick. They're not just announcing that the kingdom of heaven is coming. They're beginning right here and now in this world uh, making manifest the kingdom of heaven, which includes healing, restoration, making whole, binding up things that are broken. This is the work of the kingdom that is coming. And so when ministers of the gospel are sent out, when Jesus' disciples go out to the world, their work isn't quiet. It isn't private. It isn't mental. It's not intellectual only. It's not internal only. It is public, and in every way it's directed toward the healing of public life. Jesus intends for the world to see that there's a real connection between right worship of God and restoration of the whole man. These two things are not divided. These two things are not separated. And when the whole man submits to the Lord Jesus, the whole man is restored and healed and delivered uh, from those things that destroy him. Verse 10. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, the very dust of your city, which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know that the kingdom of God has come near to you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. He prepares them for the event that some town is not going to receive them. And he tells them how they're supposed to respond. Go out into the street. When they don't respond to you, when they don't accept you, go out into the street and publicly shake the dust of the city off your feet. Why do that? Well, when the Pharisees walk through Gentile territory, when the Pharisees walk through unclean lands, when they get back to their own land, they shake the dust off their clothes and they shake the dust off their feet. It's a very dramatic way of saying, your land is unclean, your people are unclean, the whole place is nasty, we don't want tra you uh, tracking your dirty dust into our pristine land. Well, Jesus says, you know what? If these Jewish cities that I'm sending you to do not receive the gospel, I want you to do the same thing to them. Treat them like outsiders. Treat them as if they're unclean. It would have been very profound and very offensive for the apostles, uh, I'm sorry, these disciples to do this. And yet Jesus said, do it. Uh, I would like to see that uh, from a distance. That would have been funny to see how they respond, the look on their faces. What are you doing to us? Um, so um, he says, Jesus says, nevertheless, say, know this, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Your rejection doesn't change the truth. That's what they're supposed to say. Your faithlessness hasn't altered reality. You aren't just rejecting a couple of itinerant preachers. You're rejecting the very kingdom of God, and you have brought worse judgment on yourselves. In fact, the cities who reject these messengers that Jesus sends, Jesus says it will be worse off in the day of their judgment than in the day of Sodom's judgment. It will be worse for them than Sodom in the day of judgment. Uh, he continues on this track talking about the judgment of these cities. Verse 13, Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. 
These places have seen amazing things. These places have heard incredible teaching, but they remain hard-hearted. They remain, they remain stiff-necked. They remain resistant to the gospel. Jesus says, if the things that I've done in your towns had been done in those old, ancient, wicked cities of Tyre and Sidon, if they had been done over there, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. He says to them, Jesus says, God has bared his arm in your sight. He has shown you his mighty works right before your eyes, and yet you still do not believe. Remember this. When people tell you, well, if God is really real, you know, he would just, he, he ought to just show himself. He ought to just, he ought to do something incredible. I mean, if God is real, when doesn't when does he do something to prove that he exists? When doesn't he do something amazing so that I'll believe? Well, even when he does amazing things, people don't believe. Unbelief is not a result of lack of evidence. Unbelief uh, is not a result of too little evidence. It never has been. It never will be. He did amazing things in these towns, and they still rejected him. Verse 16, he who rejects you, Jesus says, he who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. When God's truth is being proclaimed, when God's word is read aloud, the authority of Jesus is present. And if that truth is rejected, remember, it's not the messenger that's being rejected. It's the Lord. Jesus wants them to remember this. He says, if you preach my word and you tell them what I've told you to say, and they reject you, brothers, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. If they hear you, they hear me. If they reject you, they reject me and my father. Either way, you be faithful to set my words before them. How they respond doesn't reflect on you so much as it reflects on their response to me. There's comfort in that. You're just a messenger. Don't be discouraged. When you speak righteousness and when you speak truth and when you quote God's word to situations in your life and people reject it and people close up their ears and they ignore you, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the Lord. Don't think, oh, I, I, I mishandled that. Boy, I messed that up. That's what the devil wants you to think. The devil wants you to think uh, that it was dumb, that it was awkward to do that. Uh, don't think that. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the Lord Jesus. Well, uh, he sends them out. And after some time, these 70 come back with joy. After all of these ominous words, how do you expect the 70 to come back? You expect them to be like in ragged clothes, you know, missing an eye, you know, missing an arm, you know, on crutches, on wheelchairs, just kind of hobbling back. That's not how they come back. Not at all. Not even a little bit. They come back with joy. They came back energized, elated, happy. Verse 17. Then the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Well, they're even a little bit surprised. You see, Jesus sent the 12 out to cast out demons, but he didn't say anything about demons in this part we just read, did he? When he sent out the 70, he didn't say a word about demons. And even so, they're thrilled to find out that even the demons flee before them in their work. Uh, I, I love that John picked a, a mighty fortress this morning. It's always neat how the Holy Spirit works this out. What, is, what does a mighty fortress say? And though this world with devils filled uh, should threaten to undo us, that, that this world, uh, Martin Luther, who wrote um, A Mighty Fortress, had a very acute sense of the presence of the devil 
and the resistance of the devil to his work. The devil didn't like what Martin Luther was doing. And so Luther spends a lot of time talking about the presence of devils and the presence of, of Satan and the resistance of Satan. And folks, you know, I don't, I don't know what's going on and you know what's going on in your life. And there's some things individually that you all have shared with me, but it seems like over the past six weeks or so, there's been crazy stuff going on. I mean, weird, crazy, like how did that happen? And you know about it because it happened to you, but I know what happened to you and you and you and you and you and you, and you put it all together and think, man, there's some crazy demonic satanic resistance to God's work in your life and God's work in your home and God's work through the church to this community. And I don't, you know, I don't have some spiritual insight, some special, you know, goggles that I can put on and say, yep, that's a demon. I mean, it might've been just something stupid that happened, but I can tell you, I, I feel and sense this, this incredible demonic resistance to, to all the good things that we have going on here. You, I don't know how else to explain it. I just don't. I don't know how to explain it. But you see that when God stirs up his people and sends them out to the world, what, what do they find there? What do they see when they're faithful and obedient? Lord Jesus, we saw demons out there and they fled before us. When God's people are righteous and when God's people are faithful to him, it stirs up the demons. They want to resist. They want to fight back. And they, these disciples, are surprised and amazed and, and rejoice that even the demons are subject to uh, them in his name. And Jesus joins in their joy. And listen to how Jesus responds. I mean, you can tell that Jesus is thrilled and exuberant as he responds. In verse 18, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. What is Satan? Satan means accuser. And in the Old Testament, we see Satan found sometimes in the presence of God. Why is Satan in the presence of God? Well, he's accusing the saints. He's bringing false accusations. And at some level, God tolerates the presence of Satan. But with the ministry of Jesus and with the ministry of his people, the foundation of Satan's house are being rocked. And Satan is losing his footing. He's lost his access to heaven, even, it appears. And this is a huge victory. And it's an incredible blow to the fortress of Satan. The idea is here that the 70 are giving Satan so many fits and making his job so difficult, he doesn't have time to stand before God as an accuser. Satan is not omnipresent. Satan is not all-knowing. Uh, Satan is not all-powerful. He can only be in one place at one time. And so they're shaking the foundations of his kingdom, and he doesn't have time to stand before God as an accuser. He has to get back to earth to deal with his failing business prospects on earth that these 70 are shaking up. So Satan's fall from heaven doesn't destroy him, but it does put him within reach of these disciples. Jesus says, you have authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. Since the garden, we've been waiting for our chance to trample on his head and crush his head. Now he is within our reach, Jesus says. You have authority over all the power of the enemy, and he's not going to hurt you. He's not going to touch you. Still, Jesus says, don't rejoice in this that the demons are subject to you. Verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the, the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. 
The power of Satan has been broken in your life. You have been brought into God's eternal life. So while you're rejoicing, make sure that you rejoice over that. Well, you can imagine as these 70 are coming back, they're all coming back with their own stories, much like you know when you, your kids go out and do something fun and they all come back in, they all have a story to tell and they all kind of line up and they talk over each other. But dad, we did this and dad, we did this. And boy, don't forget to say this. So they're all coming back to Jesus, telling him what they did. And then he stops and prays in the middle of this, verse 21. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, Lord, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Uh, all of these, what Jesus is saying is all of these wonderful, amazing, extraordinary events are happening right under the noses of all the wise and all the powerful people of the world. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Herods, the Pilots, the Caesars, all of them don't see what's going on. What's happening? Well, the fall of Satan, the coming of the kingdom, the formation of a new humanity. God is handing all things over to the rule of his son. These are all earth shattering events and it's all hidden from the people who are supposed to know what's going on. The people who are supposed to be in the know are in the dark. God the Father has instead, Jesus says, revealed these things to babies, these guileless, simple, ordinary people who he sends out and who come back rejoicing. That's still the way it is today. Nothing's changed there either. The news networks and the prognosticators and the financial moguls and the self-help gurus and the foul-mouthed celebrities and the university professors, they don't know what's going on. Now, they want you to think they know what's going on. They want you to believe that they know, but they don't see what's really happening in the world. God has revealed this truth to his children. All the knowledge of the world has been given by the Father to the Son. And if you wanna know what's going on in the world, you have to know the Son and you have to receive that knowledge from him. That's pretty much how this section ends when, when Jesus speaks to his disciples. And we'll just look at these uh, last two verses, 23 and 24. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. All of the longings of mankind, all the wants and desires, and all the hopes and dreams of mankind are fulfilled in Jesus. And there's a whole world of people wandering in darkness looking for the answer. Jesus says, remember how blessed you are. Kings and prophets don't even know what you know. They've repeatedly yearned for it. They desperately want it, but you hold it. You have it because you have embraced the sun. Now, quickly, very quickly, what can we take home with us? Three things. One, going back to the first prayer, we still need laborers for the harvest. That hasn't changed. For some reason, the old 80-20 rule still hangs over God's kingdom. 20% 20 20 of the people do 80% of the work. The 20% are joyful, but the 20% get tired too. We need lots of hands. We need lots of people to respond when calls for help go out. We need men to be preparing themselves for leadership. There are 101 ministry opportunities that need someone to present themselves and say, you know what? I need, I need work. I need work in the kingdom of God. Point me in the right direction. The harvest is still plenty and the laborers are still few. 
Secondly, right on the heels of that, Jesus says there are lambs among wolves and he still sends them out. There are lambs among wolves and he still puts them out there. We might say that's dangerous. Yes, that's going to be a disaster. I don't know, maybe. We're a very safety-oriented people. We're all very averse to risk. We like the womb. We like the umbilical cord. And we would stay there if we could. But Jesus pushes his people out of the nest. He pushes them out of the crib. And he says, go get out there. Is it scary? Yep, it's scary. Can they try to eat us? Yes. Will they try to eat me? I bet, yeah, they'll try to eat you. Okay, off with you now. Go, but take courage. Because, number three, Our faithful work and our worship breaks Satan's hold in the world. This is something that hasn't changed either. You don't like what you see in the world. You don't like what's on the news. You don't like this world is going crazy and lost its mind. Well, guess what? We crush his head by our faithfulness. We undermine his authority. We shake his foundations. We destabilize the kingdom of Satan by our worship. And Jesus rejoices over us when we do this. Jesus loves it. You can see him rejoicing over his people. He loves it then. He loves it now when his people are faithful. Just like you are today, every day. Don't give up. Don't let up. Don't back off. Keep on being faithful. Keep stepping on scorpions and serpents. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and we give you praise that just as you've commissioned your people here in, in your word, so you have, have uh, uh, called us to the harvest. I pray that just as you commanded us, I pray that you would send us many hands for the harvest. The harvest is great and the laborers are few, and you know this. So, Father, provide workers for the harvest. And I pray that you would encourage us and give us strength and give us courage that, that we might face down the wolves that we face and that we meet along the way. And we ask you humbly to crush Satan's head under our feet. That is our prayer for our families, for our church, for the, for the kingdom of God in this culture, in this nation, in the world we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.